So uh, I titled this sermon, Are You a Sheep or a Goat? Um, but where I want to start with it is really seemingly maybe unrelated, but I think we'll soon find how this gets back to this scene that we're seeing uh, Jesus describing here. So I'm going to start with a different question, and that is, has resentment ever stopped you from being generous to someone? Has it? Has it done that in your life? Uh, I know it has for me. I know that sometimes when I see something going on with another person, I think like they aren't getting what they deserve. But usually it would be they're getting more than what they deserve, not less. Sometimes I feel overlooked for the things that I bring to the table, the ways that I serve, whether it be in my family or in work or wherever. Uh, sometimes that type of thing can actually lead me to think about God in a certain way and how I might wish or hope for God to judge other people and how I sort of maybe sometimes give myself a pass and how maybe God might judge me. Uh, here's what I mean. Let me give you an example of this kind of resentment that can shape our thinking about these things. So uh, for a good portion of my 20s, I lived in an intentional Christian community. And if you don't know what that means, then you're probably in, in with like 95% of the rest of the population. But basically, we lived in the same building, and we, uh, we had these apartments, so we had our separate living areas, but we also had some common space. And we had a, a garden, and we had uh, various things um, to engage with the people in the building and the greater community and street that we lived in. And I, uh, I worked really, really hard in this intentional community with like my labor, like I fixed a lot of things and I built things and I would stay a lot of times on weekends where maybe other people were going on vacation and doing things and I would be available to the people who had learned they could come to our place if they had needs. And while this work was good, it built up a lot of resentment in me over time because I felt that I wasn't being noticed or appreciated uh, for what I did, that when we would have our community meetings, it would be like, well, everybody's working hard and everybody's doing a lot. And I secretly just felt very hurt and unseen. And so I worked harder and I did more. And the same thing happened. And so the resentment just compounded. And so I started to look at people and say, well, they're not they're not working as hard as me, and so I would maybe have more judgmental thoughts about them and maybe think that sometimes, well, that person's lazy or that person is just trying to take credit for things that they didn't do. And some of those things may have been true, but the problem was is that I got to the point where I could walk into one of our weekly community meetings and I couldn't even make myself smile, and I moved out. I ended up leaving, made plans to leave. And I did, not, I did not understand what was going on within me, but really what had built up was resentment, which comes from hurts of not feeling like you're seen or appreciated or valued. You probably haven't lived in an intentional Christian community, but you can probably relate to the idea of resentment and feeling hurt and unseen. Let me give you a couple of examples. Maybe one of these might apply to you. So... Man, I went to college, I studied, I paid my way through college, I got a scholarship, but she got that job instead. 
or I've lived a really moral upstanding life, but he got married before me. I'm American. And yet there's immigrants who are getting things that I still haven't gotten in my life. I'm, I'm a Christian. Why aren't you giving me the benefit of the doubt? We're both Christians. Or look at the life that she's lived. Looks really reckless to me. And yet she has a child and I can't get pregnant. Or maybe this one. I've been working hard my whole life. And she doesn't seem to hardly have done anything. And she's wealthy and has all of her needs and more met. How is that fair? Surely you can relate to one or maybe more of these types of thoughts because the truth of the matter is that we all deal with thoughts of resentment and feelings of resentment at some point in our life. And actually, um, Diane uh, wrote about resentment in her blog post this week. You can read, read it in the newsletter. It's really great. Uh, but we, we deal with these things, and this often gets us to a place of self-centeredness. And, and what happens is the whole world appears to be centered around us and the things that we've done and the things that we think are important and the things that we value at that moment in time. And that causes us to become very judgmental. It's difficult for us to decenter ourselves. This is a very spiritual task that is absolutely essential. Because this is so spiritual and so difficult for us, we spend, as, a, as, as human beings, as a human race, a lot of times judging out of hurt and resentment. It seems unfair to us. And so we're not good judges. <laughs> because we have such a hard time looking beyond our immediate circumstances to get a good perspective on what's happening in the world, we're not good judges. The problem is, though, that oftentimes our way of judging from our hurt and unresolved feelings gets reflected in how we view God and what kind of, God, what kind of judge we want God to be like. And that judge is somebody who looks very favorably on us and not so favorably on other people based on our criteria. So when we were talking about this passage earlier this week, uh, we were talking about, I think Katie said it, is everybody thinks they're a sheep in this passage, which get the good stuff and did the good things, and nobody thinks they're a goat. And part of the reason is because of this resentment and this this problem we have with being able to decenter ourselves from situations. It's a spiritual problem. So I want us to keep that in mind as we look into this passage, because if you think about that type of reality, if you think about that based on the things that I do and the things that I think I deserve, um, other people are not getting what they deserve and it's less than what they have. If you think about life like that, it's really, that's a sad way to live. It's, it's an idea of an impoverished universe, a universe where there's not actually enough. And so those who get what they deserve um, should have a certain type of moral life that happens to look more like ours than anybody else's. 
And so we have this mentality that there's only enough for a small portion of us. And so it must look like the life that I'm living or the life at least that I'm aspiring to living. This is also a common tool used by manipulative and bellicose politicians to say there's not enough and I'm trying to give it to people who are like you and not give it to the people who aren't like you, who don't believe in the things that you believe in. So this is a very relevant and important passage for us. And so let's look at this parable in Matthew 25 and see if we can decenter ourselves for a moment in time and examine uh, what, what it might it look like at the end. What might it look like for God to be judged, not us, and how that can affect how we live right now. There's an idea, a concept in, in Christian theology called eschatology, and that's essentially what that means. How's it all going to shake out in the end, and how does that affect how we live today? So looking back at the passage, let's, let's take a look, starting in the beginning. We just see that uh, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man coming in his glory and all his angels with him. And he will sit on his glorious throne. So all these nations, it says all the nations will be gathered before him. And then he'll begin to separate people, uh, as a shepherd does, as, separ- as a shepherd uh, separates sheep from goats. So kind of picture here, that's the third picture in three parables Jesus is giving in this chapter, is of a, a king... And it's very similar to an old, a very important Old Testament passage in Daniel 7 about the Son of Man coming. It's a king called the Son of Man who is coming. So coming to where people are. It's not happening up in heaven, disembodied. It's here on earth. This king arrives and sits down on a throne, and he's flanked by probably an army of angels or something like that. And the king begins to portion off people into two different categories. And the metaphor of the sheep and goats, we used it earlier in our liturgy in Ezekiel 34, is a familiar picture and a familiar image of how God uh, is as a shepherd. And so shepherds in the first century and today, at night, separate separate sheep and goats. And it's basically because the sheep can stand out in the cold, and the goats can't because the sheep's got all that wool and whatever. So the, so the image was familiar, not familiar to us probably, uh, not, probably not too many shepherds watching this, but, um, but uh, that's where the analogy comes from. So that's, that's the parable we've got here. This is not meant, I, I, I really don't believe uh, when we're looking at the parables Jesus is telling in this chapter, I don't, meant, I don't think it's meant that we take this as a literal situation. I don't think literally that people will, as the parable says, be goats and sheep separated, because it does actually say that in there. Um, It says uh, the sheep on one side and the goats on the other side, and it's followed by these other two parables. So if if it is indeed a parable, that means the metaphors being used are meant to make us think, to help to subvert the normal ways we think about judgment and maybe resentment and who's in and who's out, who's deserving and who is undeserving. I think primarily that's what this passage is about. So we're looking here at all the nations being gathered and the two categories that 
uh, the Son of Man, the King, the one who's doing the final judgments, which Scripture tells us is Jesus, uh, how he will separate people. Now, there's an important note here, and that is that a lot of times when the, the phrase or the word nations is used in the Bible, we have to remember that this is a Jewish book, and so a lot of times the, the uh, term all the nations is referring to Gentiles, okay? So sometimes it means everybody but Jews, and there's a way to read this passage uh, that is actually more of the traditional pa- way of reading it that takes that stance. And I'm going to address that a little bit later and why I think that might not be what this parable is about, um, that the Jews are separate from this situation here. By the way, so it's not that Christians are separate, it's that Jews are separate. This is the audience and how Jesus would have understood that. So we are, we are not the people. We would be, if it was just Jews who were outside of all the nations, unless you are Jewish, you would be here being divided among the sheep and the goats in this parable just to be real clear. And no amens from that, huh? No? Okay. So, um, so these two categories, think about all the ways that you could divide somebody up. You could divide people up. Race, ethnicity, class, social status, whatever. Any of those here? No. None of those are here. No, no special beliefs, no creeds, no, no things that are believed in a certain type of way. Um, it's just by a very simple category of mercy. Uh, So yeah, just let's think about it for a second, all the ways that we divide people up. Uh, Smart, dumb, conservative, liberal, fit, overweight, pretty, ugly, straight, gay, Christian, non-Christian, wise, foolish, young, old, Republican, Democrat, nice, mean, rude, polite, well-dressed, some of you guys, uh, lots, lots of categories that we could put people in right? Oh, I meant that the other way. (laughs) Uh, We're all just volunteering today. We're not trying to impress anybody. And, you know, thankfully at Christ City, we don't, we don't really try to do that. But so there, there's an incredible amount of diversity in humanity. There's a, God doesn't seem to have a problem with diversity, right? I mean, otherwise we'd have a lot more twins or at least more Irish twins, which Full disclosure, I don't even know what that means, but I heard somebody say it last week. Um, I'm sure it means something about looking alike and being born close together, but maybe not at the same time. I don't know why that's an Irish thing. Anyway, uh, I digress. So the criteria, how would you divide people up? Like if you got to be the judge, what, what is something that you walk around thinking about a lot or something that you're constantly trying to improve in your life that you would end up trying to judge people with? trying to make uh, qualitative decisions about the worth of a human being. Our first, what we want our first reaction to be, as people who have been properly the- theologized by Christian thought, is, oh, I would never do that. The problem is, in the world all around us, it's clear that we do that. And it's clear that we have a hard time, at least harder than God does, handling the diversity of humanity, the diversity of thought, the diversities of appearance, of sexuality, of belief systems. But 
in this parable, at least, it doesn't seem like God really is concerned about any of those things, about how we classify and divide people up. And so this allows us to get decentered. It allows us, if, if we're willing to put some faith out there, if we're willing to, um, for a moment, suspend our judgment and our belief about where all this is supposed to be going, because you've probably heard this passage before, and you've certainly heard things like it before, and just to see what is it that's going on here. So uh, we look at the criteria of the Son of Man here, of the judge, and he says, hey, those of you who fed people who are hungry, gave drinks to those who were thirsty, clothed the naked, gave shelter to the stranger, cared for the sick, visited those in prison, you're the ones who are pleasing to me. You're the ones who are on the side of the sheep. The right hand of uh, God is the favored side. In essence, those who've shown mercy, loving kindness to their neighbor, to those around them, to the least of these. This is a shocking thing. I don't don't know if we've realized how much the teachings of Jesus have shaped what we think we should be proud of and ashamed of, what we should feel good about and guilty about in this world, in our uh, Western world. Until the times of Jesus, the types of behaviors that were seen as admirable was not humility, it was, it was pride. It, it wasn't uh, to take care of the vulnerable, it was to conquer them and to exploit them. Those were the kinds of things that if you wanted to really be successful and you wanted to really look powerful and be in the good graces of other powerful people, those were the things that everyone would say, yeah, that's kind of what you want to be able to do. That's kind of how you, how you want to be able to live. And even so, uh, I don't want to focus completely on that. In this passage, we talk a lot about mercy, loving kindness. Tim Keller, uh, uh, a more conservative theologian, and I say that because of what he defines it as, he said the closest thing to the phrase um, loving kindness or mercy in the Old and New Testament, the closest thing that we have to that phrase is the term social justice. And so that's, that's essentially what we see Um, being the sole criteria for where people's eternal destinations will be according to this parable. Here's what I don't think we want to do with this parable right now today. It's been done many times with it. But I don't think what we need to do here is to create another hierarchy, another way of dividing up people, and to find out who's better and who's not. (laughs) How could you even pretend to know what people do with all of their time and how they treat others around them. Anytime you do, it usually doesn't end up well. Um, I don't think we need to, uh, well, maybe we do, but that's not, this is not what I'm trying to do, is create or reorient your view of salvation. It's not what I'm trying to do in this, in this passage. Or to have a new way to judge who's in and who's out. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's what this parable primarily has for us. What I do think it's for is actually, it's actually a message that's, it's almost like when I was thinking about this and reading this, praying over this, 
it's like pushing and bursting at the seams of the ways that we want to exclude. That, that this, this, this passage is desperately trying to break apart those categories. That like the book of James says, it says that true religion is to take care of the widow and the orphan. That this message that is so scandalous to how we want to categorize one another um, it, it is, is here. Uh, let me give you an example of, of what I mean. I was with my in-laws last week visiting my wife's sick father, and I was talking with my brother-in-law. We were taking a walk, and we were talking about religion and politics, and he, he said he considers himself a, um, uh, a humanist, a, um, man, I can't remember, uh, some kind of humanist. Anyway, uh, basically, uh, you know, he would align with sort of an agnostic view. And we were talking about the different influences in culture, similar to, to what this message is about. Um, and I was telling him that I believed that the Western world has its view of what is shameful and what people feel guilty about, largely because of the teachings of Jesus. Similar to what we just said, the subversion of pride and humility, that humility was something to be grasped, to want, to desire, that caring for the sick, caring for the poor was a good thing, not to exploit them. And as I finished saying those things and talking about that, uh, he said, you know, if you were to say all of that to an agnostic or an atheist, I think they would say, yeah, I'm good with that. I think, I think that's a good thing. And that probably would be pretty frustrating to you, right? Because you have people who are not Christians, who maybe don't even believe in God, who are saying they agree with those things. But they Well, hello. hello. Folks, I just had to take a quick restroom break. Uh, yeah, it was just a little, little power uh, thing. So we were left on the cliffhanger of me talking with my brother-in-law and saying that his agnostic and atheist friends who basically, he said, would agree with the Beatitudes and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, maybe they just think of themselves in the wrong category. Maybe they're actually Christians. And that being a subversive thought that parables tend to want to do. So, there is this idea, though, in here that I mentioned earlier about the nations uh, being refer referring to the Gentiles. And so, first of all, like I said, that means that that's us, if we're not Jewish. And uh, second, uh, the Jewish folks are, are familiar with this type of eschatological picture, um, but... Uh, Let's see. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that is the point of this parable. Because if it was, then that would be to say, um, when we talk about Jesus saying caring for the least of these brothers uh, and sisters of mine, that what he's saying is um, how you treat uh, missionaries of the message of Jesus determines your eternal salvation, right? So. 
uh, or, or damnation. And so he's got all, all the nations there. If that were the case, um, then what, where the, how do the rest of the nations who haven't had Christian missionaries deal with that? I mean, there's, that's a, a huge problem um, in, the, in the beginning there. Uh, so uh, the other thing is that these people were very surprised. They didn't know that the people that they were serving had anything to do with Jesus or that were representations of Jesus, which for a king, because that's what the portrayal is of, it's of a king in this parable, that the king uh, has emissaries who go out and spread the good news about what that king is about. And so one of the first thing that those people would do as the emissaries of the king is announce who they are and who they represent. So it doesn't really fit with the parable that these people are shocked and surprised wherever the side that they, that they are. But the most important thing, it's not those sort of logical assertions that are most convincing to me about the parable in itself. It's that the teachings of Jesus in this same book, in this same gospel, go far beyond that. They go far beyond the, well, if, you, if you're in our religious circle, if you're Jewish, if you're representing these certain ideas, then if you have direct contact, if you care for these people, then you'll be saved. That's just a very small idea compared to the teachings of Jesus when he says, hey, everybody loves people who love them back, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. All of these types of ideas that God is the God of the righteous and unrighteous alike. He sends his reign on both the just and the unjust alike. So to sort of bring this parable down into a smaller, more reductive picture of what Jesus is talking about, and again, turn it into kind of a tribal religiosity here of how to organize people, I think that misses the picture. And oftentimes it seems that is exactly what's happened when people considered this parable, because I don't think that they did it from a decentered perspective of holding in suspense that I've got the best read on this life, that I know the best about what God thinks, that this passage is not going to teach me something new, but it's going to reaffirm all the ways that I've already categorized who's in and who's out. That's not a God I'm really that interested in serving. That makes me think smaller and presses me more into a smaller, less creative box. I don't think that God does that. I don't think the creator of the cosmos is going to put me in a tiny little room and not let me explore what he's made. That's what I'm talking about. So let's talk about the other camp. Let's talk about the goats for a few minutes, and then we'll we'll close our time. Uh, He says in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in 46, uh, after he relays why, which is that you did not show loving kindness, you were not merciful to the least of these. He says in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So again, what matters here? is also what isn't present in this parable. And what isn't present is that Jesus is not saying, you were not religiously devoted enough. This king is not saying that. You 
didn't call God by the right name. That's not in there. It's not that you said a magical prayer when you were eight years old, and so now you have your, your hellfire insurance, right? Or that you attended the most church services, or that you memorized enough scripture or have enough biblical knowledge or understanding. None of those things are there. None of them. It's so clear-cut in this parable that he says, if you neglect the poor and the needy, the least among you, he says, it's as if you have neglected me. So according to Jesus's parable here, if you want to be devoted to God, then that means that you serve those who are needy around you. This is not the only place this is in the Gospels, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, it's got to be two, actually. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two of them. There's actually two. And here we see the link of those again. When you gave that person a cup of cold water, when you clothed that person who was naked, when you visited that person who was sick or in prison, you did that to me. You did that for me. So we see that devotion to God is manifest exclusively in this passage with how we are treating the people around us who are needy, who are without the things that they need. This is a radical idea in human nature. It's something our little brains have still not caught up to because we are so insecure in this impoverished universe that we see around us, that we imagine it to be. And we imagine God must be as poor as we are in terms of needing all of these other types of religious devotion and fanaticism even, instead of just believing there's enough believing that there is enough faith, believing that there's enough care, that there's enough concern to go around, and that all of the things, all of the worship and devotion of God that we're seeking in our lives is to understand that more clearly, to be able to love ourselves enough that when we love our neighbor, we see that reflected in who God is and what God wants and desires out of us. That was an amen moment right there as well, just so you know. So here's what struck me in this parable when we get to this point. Here's what stands out to me. It's not for me to be quaking in my boots whether or not I've got enough points or to try to go look out and see who's a sheep and who's a goat and then to align myself with the people I think that are sheep. I think what seeing this part helps me to realize is that when, I'm going to say this slow and I might say it more than once, when I ignore the needs of the most vulnerable people around me, I align myself with evil. That when I ignore the needs of the most vulnerable, I align myself with evil. The, the place prepared for the devil and his angels that's where those folks are headed in this parable. As I was finishing uh, thinking about this, this sermon, and I was thinking about these ideas, it brought me to 
this phrase that I've seen on bumper stickers and t-shirts and, and different places online. And it's a scary phrase to me. And it's also deeply embedded in two prominent places that I know of. It's embedded deeply in American patriotism and Muslim extremists. And that is this phrase, kill them all and let God sort them out. All right. Uh, this phrase originated uh, in the 13th century in South France when some of the representatives of the Roman Catholic Church were trying to root out some heretics who had escaped to a town. And the heretics were, at, uh, um, uh, what was the name of them? Did I write it down? Well, it was the Cathar heresy. That was the name of the type of heresy. And um, they, uh, they were hiding in this town, and the soldiers, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, France division of soldiers, came into this town, and all the people of the town took sanctuary in the church there. And so the general reported back to his seniors in the church and said, what do we do? There's, there's no way we're going to find out who belongs to this heretic sect and who doesn't because they'll just lie. They're intermixed with the people already. So what should we do? And essentially, that was the Pope's reply in Latin, kill them all, or not, I don't know if it was the Pope or not, but whoever the, uh, the legate was, um, said kill them all, for God will surely know his own. And this is why it's so important to decenter ourselves from these stories and to hold in suspense what we believe it is that God means and who he means it for. So let's ponder the end of this parable together. Would God put people into eternal fire for not being compassionate and showing mercy? when to do that would be the opposite of showing compassion and showing mercy. Does that fit with the teachings of Jesus to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek? I think, at least for me, what this parable is causing me to do, because I realize that whatever the shape of God's judgment looks like in my imagination, it will reflect how I treat other people. So for me, what this parable is about is to show and to help, help me to ponder what does it mean to be aligned and to devoted to God? How, how, how do I keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing and not get distracted um, by all of the things that well up inside of me when I feel resentful, when I feel unseen, when I feel unappreciated. Because when I hole up in those feelings and I nurture and I caress those and I imagine that God is with me in a negative way, in my negative views of other people, that God affirms those views and that God is on my side in those resentments and those hurts and that loneliness, what manifests very often is evil over time. And so not that most of us 
or hopefully any of us will ever be murderers. <laughs> but how do we contribute to what devotion to God looks like in and around the world that we live in? How do we reframe our understanding of what it means to think about the sheep and the goats? I'll end with this right here. The, uh, the Catholic Church, you know, they have particular views and edicts and things that they put out on scriptures, and there was an important um, revamp of the Vatican that happened, uh, and they call it the Vatican Council II. And one of the things that came out of that was a more inclusive view of uh, Catholicism and other people groups and religions and things like that. And part of that was what they, what they teach about Matthew 25. And I just want to read that, and then we'll pray and take communion. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 40, it says, In our times, a special obligation binds us to make ourselves the neighbor of absolutely every person and of actively helping him when he comes across our path, whether he be an old person abandoned by all, a foreign laborer unjustly looked down upon, a refugee, a child born of an unlawful union and wrongly suffering for a sin he did not commit, or a hungry person who disturbs our conscience by recalling the voice of the Lord. As long as you did it for one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for uh, the words, the Matthew of gospel. I thank you for the way your parables teach us to think if we are willing. I pray that you give us, and I ask this for myself first, pray that you would give us a suspension of belief of who we think is, is included and who we think is not, and that you would give us a more merciful and full of loving kindness disposition toward those whom seem different than us, who seem scary or seem threatening or seem uh, lazy or whatever you might put in that blank. I pray that you would give us by your spirit, by the spirit of God, the same loving kindness and mercy that allowed Jesus to utter Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Care for the widow and the orphan. In Jesus' name, amen.